Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Grace, and thank you all for joining in the singing. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John as a, as a way to instruct us and guide us in our worship. We are, we're in chapter 13, and this has often been called this section the, the upper room discourse, uh, because there is a discourse involved, and it was in the upper room. So in case you're wondering, that's how we arrive at those titles. But this is the time when our Lord gathers in that upper room around the Last Supper. And again, it's, it's always in my mind, he knows the cross is tomorrow. And yet so much of what he is saying is out of concern for those who are with him rather than what's before him. And yet, uh, I'm reminded of the scene. Hey, maybe you've seen pictures at times at Christmas time, you know, where there's the, the manger scene there in the, in the stall, and there's a shadow of a cross that kind of comes down across the cradle and the baby. I, I guess you can't do a shadow being cast down from the window in, in, um, in, in a nighttime event. But there's the shadow of the cross on this whole season. As in Jesus' mind, that's what's, that's what's so much before him. And, and, and yet, and, and a typical of display of his love and grace, he's focusing on how to prepare his disciples for his cross more than thinking about how to prepare himself for his cross. And so that's where we are. We're in chapter 13. And, and, and they're setting down to the, the, this Passover meal. And he's, he's, he's mentioned some things. He's talked about uh, the betrayal, the, he, that, that one who, sit at, at his, who, has, who has actually eaten with him at his table ha, will, will kick him with the heel, is kind of what the language says in the original. In, the, in other words, here, one of the things that most showed your kindness to someone was, and you're, you're honoring someone, is you had them to your table. And, and the worst thing you can do is kick someone with your foot, which is kind of a sign of dishonor. And so he, what he's saying is there's one that there is in that room who has so dishonored Jesus Christ. He will continue pointing to that in the next verses that are before us. We're, we're in chapter 13, verses 21 to 30, and, and I encourage you to look in your own Bible and follow along, how, whether that's a, uh, in, pay, on, in a book or on a, on a device, but John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. 
For some thought because Judas had the money box that, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And it was night. In verse 18, he he'd predicted or he'd said one of them was one of them would turn on him. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be filled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So one of them is going to dishonor the Lord. But now he's even more direct. Not just, what do you mean, turn up against me? He's lifted up his heel against me. Now he says he's going to uh, betray him. Uh, that, that word to betray there literally means to hand over. One of you is going to betray me, hand over. And he uses the, the strongest possible terms. He says, uh, he, he says he testified and said. So in other words, he, he uses, instead of saying he just said, he testified. He witnessed in other words, he, he, it's almost as if he's saying a solemn oath here. He's using strong language. And then he says, most assuredly, in my translation, um, some of your translations might have verily, verily, or amen. Literally, in the Greek, it's amen, amen. And, and so when, when Jesus says that anywhere in his Gospels, that's, that's his way of saying, this is very true. Amen means that's, that's true. Amen, amen. It's very true. So, so he's using the strongest possible language. He's saying, look at me. Listen to what I'm saying. Some of you who are parents or, or teachers, you know that uh, voice you put on. Focus on what I am about to say. I do that with my dog. I use a trick. I hold a treat when I say it. And I get focus. Now, if I move the treat, the eyes move off me. But if I keep them close. But what Jesus is saying here is, um, hear what I'm saying. And for three years he's been teaching them. And so hopefully something grabs them that they're focused. Jesus means this. This isn't a passing comment. Listen to what I'm saying. And I, again, I, I feel like by three years of with him, they gathered, okay, we need to hear what he's saying. What's he going to say? When Jesus said these things, we're told, and he told, one of you is going to betray me. And then he's, we're told, when Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit. We've talked about this word uh, before. Uh, John uses the term about four or five times, and a couple of times of Jesus. It first appeared... Though when Jesus was at the, at the tomb of, of Lazarus, and it says he was troubled in spirit. It's a word that just, it means stirred up in a, in a fierce way, stirred up. And so at that time, it was, it was seeing all the grief and sorrow around him. And then um, he, he, he said when he saw the, the Greeks responding to him, uh, in other words, so Gentiles were now showing interest in Jesus while the Jews were showing disinterest. 
that a, trans, a, a, a paradigm shift was happening, a, a major transition. And again, the pivot point when the focus will turn from no longer focusing on Israel, rather the Jews put on the shelf, if you will, for a while, and the focus now the gospel going to the Gentile world, the pivot point is the cross. And so he wasn't deeply troubled that the Gentiles were coming to faith. He was deeply troubled what it was going to cost for that transition to happen. And so in verse 27, when that happened, he said, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so our Lord is, 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 is deeply moved. Again, and it's interesting to me, John is, the, is the, the gospel that most seems to emphasize the deity of Christ, that he's fully God. First verse, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And, and by the end of it, he's saying, in believing and knowing him as God, you have eternal life. But he also wants us to know he's fully man. And we saw him uh, tired and thirsty sitting at the well. And we see him here with a, a troubled spirit. He's capable of deep emotional feelings. What is it that's troubling him? What is it that's troubling him here? Seems to be, um, he may be troubled for himself as he thinks about the betrayal of Judas. Uh, He's invested his life for three years into Judas. He's, he's taught him. He's spent time with him. He's, ta- he's, he's been with him. He's talked with him. He's been a part of the ministry for three years. Um, is it that betrayal that has his spirit so wounded and so turned up? Maybe. But I think what's greatly most troubling Jesus here at this moment is Judas. For, for Judas, he is turned up. Remember when Jesus approached Jerusalem, and he looked out over Jerusalem, and he says he wept for Jerusalem. And he, and he, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers in the chicks. You know, you sense the, uh, the, the loving spirit, the the protective spirit. But then he says, but you would not. In other words, you were unwilling to receive my mercy and love. And he's not weeping anger. He goes on to say, say and therefore judgment is coming on you. And his heart weeps for Jerusalem because as we heard in Sunday school, uh, in the adult Sunday school, ideas have consequences. Their unbelief is going to bring devastating consequences. Jesus in his mind is as God, and he can look on them and, and, and see that 40 years later, he can see the same city that he's, he's about to enter. He, he can see it surrounded by Romans and a horrific horrific siege and destructive time. Remember he even told his disciples you think the temple is beautiful? Not one stone will sit up, stand upon another. 
So he wept for Jerusalem because of what their unbelief was going to do to them. I think in the same way, his heart is troubled for Judas. Judas has had unparalleled opportunities. Unparalleled when you think about it. You know, we have opportunities. We, we have people who have shared the gospel with us. We have radio. We have internet. We have TV. We have uh, apps. We have a Bible. We have church. All that's good. But think what Judas had. He has seen and walked with the Messiah, God incarnate, for three years. God in the flesh was his roadside companion, his dinner companion, his breakfast companion, his personal teacher for three years. He has seen amazing miracles. When the leper came to him, and, and, and when you see a leper, the first thing you do is you run if you're in that culture. You know, they're supposed to stay away from you and you stay away from them. What did Jesus do? He put out his hand and touched him. In horror, they thought, Jesus, what have you done? But instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper became clean. You can imagine, as they held their breath in horror, now they were holding their breath in wonder. He saw miracles. Remember when, when Jesus was going into a village at Nain, and, and there was a funeral procession coming out? He interrupted the funeral. He raised the dead on the spot. The, the, just a little time before he'd raised Lazarus right over the Kidron Valley raised him and and, and Judas was there who saw him coming out still in the grave clothes stumbling because he was still all wrapped up Judas, Judas had seen incredible miracles in fact he was sent out with the with the twelve to preach the gospel and he did and to do miracles. And he did. Why do I know he did? Because he was sent out to do those things. And no one ever came back and said, why is it Judas is giving a different message? Why is it Judas isn't doing any miracles? No, God enabled him to do those things. He saw the power of God in his own life as well as in those around him. For three years, he had heard the most powerful, most insightful, most winsome, most brilliant teaching in history. In history. It's been, I think it's commonly agreed that the most famous sermon ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. Judas was there. Judas heard Jesus, the, 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 the teaching to the crowds. Judas heard the teaching to the twelve. Our Lord had treated Judas with nothing but kindness and grace as he did the others. We all have our good days and our bad days. This was one of those times I'd be tempted to say all eyes closed, heads bowed. How many have had uh, some conflicts just getting here this morning? But I'm not going to ask that. Sometimes I might be the one that have to raise the hand. Jesus never had a bad day. He's never unkind, never ungracious. 
never wrong. He'd seen that for three years, up, up close and personal. And what's interesting is, in all the interactions between G- Jesus and Judas, no one ever once noticed there was something different in how Jesus treated him. He was just like the other 11. Look, think of for three years all that he had seen, but still, he turns Jesus over to condemnation for a handful of silver. Judas is an interesting character. He saw it all. He faked it. Convincingly. He preached a message he himself did not believe. He he went from village to village and said, the Messiah is coming. You need to trust in him. You need to repent of your sins. But he didn't. You see his hypocrisy when Jesus announces, one of you will betray me. And and we're told, Matthew will tell you this in chapter 26, that all around the table, each one said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? I don't think that they were thinking he's going to leave, that that this person's going to leave tonight and go and start the process of turning Jesus over to, to the Romans. But they maybe were afraid, will I be the one to speak out of turn? You know, I, I'm thinking about the old posters they had in the war. Uh, loose lips sink ships. Am I going to be the one that messes up? Am I going to be the one that, that guides them to Jesus un, uh, unintentionally? Am I going to be the one that's going to mess up? Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And interestingly, Matthew tells us, and specifically, he doesn't name them all. He said each one. But But even Judas says, Rabbi, is it I? Now, it is interesting. They all say, Lord, is it I? He says, Rabbi. You know, there is a difference between a teacher and a Lord. But, but, but he was, and, 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 and remember, by this time, he'd already made the deal. He knew he was the traitor. But he knew how to act the part. I think if, you know, it's been thought that if, if Jesus at that moment had said, it's Judas, what do you think would have happened? I think we might have seen a scene of murder on the scene, on, if they really believed it. Can't you just see the other 11 jump on him? You're going nowhere. But, but not a one, you don't see, they all asking about themselves. They're not looking at Judas and saying, you skunk. That's how well he convinced them. But Jesus knew all along, back in chapter 6, he says, didn't I not call you, but one of you is a devil. And as he cleaned feet, remember he said, you're all clean, but not all of you. They'd all been washed in regeneration, but not Judas. But, but Jesus here, it's his, 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 his emotion is not so much the offense against him. It's the tragedy of what's going to happen to Judas. Again, sometimes a parent will experience that where they'll see a child, especially maybe an older child, making a decision. And all they can, and, and their heart is, is, is turned up 
Not because, hey, you're rejecting my counsel, but I know where this is going to take you. I know where this is going to take you. That's where Jesus is. I think this shows us the heart of our Lord. He has no joy in the perishing of the lost. You know the end of Judas. Shortly after his betrayal, he's going to end up trying to give the money back. And they won't even take it. It's blood money. And he goes and he takes his own life. But that's regret, not repentance. Our Lord takes no joy in that devastating act, nor in the eternal punishment of Judas. He takes no joy in that. He grieves. It shows us the heart of man. So if we see the heart of our Lord and his grace and his kindness and his mercy, we see the heart of man. Judas was dead in sin, as we all are when we begin life. He was incapable of saving faith on his own, as we all are. If not for the grace of God, our eyes continue in darkness and lostness. It's God's grace, and this shows us our dependence. Matter of fact, back in chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We see here the desperate lostness of man's condition. But we see the promise and hope also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. In Ephesians 2, 8, the familiar text. For by grace we're saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So this verse shows us the heart of God and the heart of man. How much we need God's grace. Going on in verse 22, we see, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Again, we, the other disciples tell us how, or the other gospels tell us they're out. Each one is asking, am, am I the one? Am I the one? Am I the one? It says they were perplexed, and that literally means uh, they were without a way. You know, what do I do with that? Where do I go with that information? And, and you can just imagine they're thinking, if it's, who is it? What do we do with this information? They were perplexed. Well, then going to the next section, verses uh, 23 to 26. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread. And when I've dipped it, and have it, when I've dipped it, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So let me remind you that this is a, a, they're eating in a different way than we're, we're comfortable with. The Jews normally ate sitting at a table. But when it was a special feast, they used the, the Roman style. And that meant that they were uh, sitting around a table that's kind of in the shape of a, a U, or three tables, if you will. In the middle is where some of the serving, you know, you could serve from there. So every, they sat on the outside of this U, uh, so they're all facing each other. It's just like, uh, it's exactly what da Vinci got wrong in his painting. Remember, if you see the painting, they're all sitting on one side of the table looking out. How do you have a conversation like that? I mean, it's great if you're taking a pose of a picture, but... Um, 
But that's not how they ate. So they ate where everyone can see each other. But they were reclining. And this was to be a sign of um, we're at ease. It's a sign of celebration. And so that's the thing when it says John was, was at his, was lying on his breast. That's the idea. If you want to talk to someone and your person next to you, you've got to lean over like this. And so John was to the right of Jesus. Judas was to the left of Jesus. That's how Jesus can dip and give directly to him. Peter wasn't right in that area. He was apparently like across the table. And, and so he motions to John. Um, what, how that worked, you know, how, how he mentioned it, I'm not clear. But he, he made some quiet motions. Ask Jesus. Apparently, so much was going on and maybe discussion and all that that no one noticed it. Or no one understood what he was saying. Oh, and, and by the way, the disciple whom he loved, everyone agrees, it's most everyone agrees, that it's, the guy, that's, it's John who writes this epistle. He'll say that at the end of the book. I'm the one who's writing this thing. He never names himself. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, meaning, in other words, instead of thinking of himself, he thinks of Jesus. Who am I? I'm someone Jesus loved. That was his greatest claim to identity. I'm, I'm one who's loved by Jesus. So, anyway, so John, Jesus, Judas are there. Peter signals, who is it? And, and Jesus, John quietly leans over to Jesus and says, um, who is it, Lord? And, 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 and Jesus says, the one to whom I give this that I'm going to dip. Now, if you've been to our Passover Seder that we do every year, Thursday before Easter, that's the night in which they had the Last Supper. And so we kind of recreate those events. We, the one thing we don't do is we don't do the reclining. And uh, we do washing of hands. I don't do washing of feet. But, but we, we do this meal as Jesus. It was the traditional Jewish meal that looked back 1,500 years to the first Passover in Egypt. By this time, there were kind of prayers that were typically said, events that were typically done, and one of the things they do is all through the meal there were there were things of symbolism. Uh, for example, they had um, uh, we used a parsley, but they had a vegetable. You would dip it into salt water and eat it, and that saltiness was to remind of the tears they shed uh, in Egypt. Another thing they do is they eat uh, bitter herbs. So they take some of the the bread. And, and one of the things that by this is the season of unleavened bread. So it's it's matzah. It's like the cracker we will we will have as we celebrate the Lord's table in a little bit. That's why we get this. We're we're taking the elements Jesus took from that night. It was a unleavened bread, and he took it and broke it, and he dipped it in two things probably. Uh, one is called haroset, which is a apples and cinnamon and nuts kind of thing mixed up. Um, that's supposed to represent the mortar they put between the bricks. But the most significant thing is he then dips it in bitter herbs. And for that, we use horseradish. And if you've been to that and you're supposed to get a, a good enough portion, it's supposed to bring tears to your eyes. And we, we search carefully. We've had some years where we got some pretty pale horseradish that didn't kick enough. So we make sure we get something that will, you will notice these herbs are bitter. 
That's to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. There were tears and there was a bitterness. So 1,500 years later or now 3,500 years later as, as the Jews eat those bitter herbs, they're reminded of the bitterness of the bondage in Egypt. And we can kind of take that spiritually and say for us as, as Gentiles though, but as believers in Christ, we were in this bondage of slavery to sin. And sin is a horrible taskmaster. It brings bitterness into our experience in life. But the whole point is that bitterness reminds of the bondage and slavery to sin and the bondage and slavery in Egypt. Jesus took that and handed it to Judas. We do that in the Seder. And if you might remember, I'll kind of act that particular part out. John's over here. Judas is here. I dip. I hand. He eats. And so Jesus said, who's the traitor? The one before whom I dip, not says here, but into the bitter herbs and give it to him. That's the traitor. He handed the matzah and bitter herbs to Judas, and Judas ate it. By the way, he's called Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, because Judas was a common name. It's literally Judah. But just so that we know exactly who he is. Verse 27 to 30 we read, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. After the piece of bread. And so after he ate of the bread and the bitter herbs, Satan entered him. We're told earlier that Satan uh, planted a thought in his mind. He tempted him. And the language used is he cast the thought in. And to me, that's a picture of casting a, a pebble into a well. And I've mentioned that. And that's how Satan tempts us. He, he can't read our mind. But he can drop thoughts in. Suggestions. What do we do with that? That's where we become accountable. Well, he cast a thought into Judas's mind to betray Jesus. And Judas seized on it. But now, he's not casting in a thought. He's taking over. This is demon possession. He's now taking control. And Judas is coming under a a grievous bondage. So just as he eats the bitter herbs that speak of the bondage and slavery of sin, he's coming under the bondage and bitterness of slavery to Satan. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The Lord was not endorsing his action. You know, sometimes uh, you might have someone, maybe, or you tell someone, do it and do it quickly. Go clean your room and clean it quickly. Uh, Go do this and do it quickly. Um, That's not the spirit here. It's almost like the person going before the, uh, about to receive some kind of discipline. Do you remember in ancient history when principals had a board in their room uh, for special meetings with students that were having a struggle with discipline? It's been called the Board of Education that was applied to the seat of learning. It would not be out of line for someone at that point to quote Jesus. What you must do, do quickly. 
let's get this over with. Get on with it. I think that's closer to the spirit here. He's, he's not endorsing it, but you're going to do it. You might as well just go and do it. And frankly, you no, you no longer have a part here. You are the traitor. You're the satanically controlled traitor. Time for you to leave. Verse 28 and 29 say, but no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus said, said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So remember when they were all asking, am I the traitor? Am I the traitor? Am I the traitor? No one said, is he the traitor? Is he the traitor? And even as Jesus now tells Simon, uh, Judas go and do quickly what you must do they're not thinking here it is in fact I'm not even sure at this point if John knows that that's what he's saying he, he's, he's, he's identified him as the traitor but I don't think I think if John knew he's about to go over and, and make the, the, the deal I don't know that Judas would have gotten out of the room but you know, but so it's caught them all off guard. John knows he's the one, but he doesn't know. And now's the time. Right now. The others don't even know it's Judas. They heard. They didn't hear what Peter said to John. They didn't hear what John said to Jesus, or Jesus said to John. But they heard what Jesus said to Judas. That was for all of their benefit. And they were. Um, there were probably all kinds of guessing about what was meant. But the key to me, it's, this shows how completely, again, deceived they were by Judas. They assumed when, when Jesus is telling him to go and do, they're, they're thinking either he's going to buy some supplies for the feast. This is the Passover. They've already got the supplies for this meal. But that begins in a week of unleavened bread, and you've got to buy up supplies a sabbath is coming that's always a you got to get your shopping done so maybe they're, they're saying go and do the shopping we need to get through the feast or apparently jesus at times they would give money to the poor out of their resources and so some thought well maybe he's going to go uh, do a charity offering and jesus is saying go and, and and give some money to the poor but they had no idea he's saying go and betray me Again, what a sad reminder we have in Judas. He could talk the talk. He could even teach and preach. He could do miracles by the power of God. But he did not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He had every opportunity, but he never once took his sin to the Savior for forgiveness. And one of the biblical principles is, and this is why I think Jesus is so turned up, the greater the opportunity, the greater the accountability. And very few in history have had the opportunity that Judas had. And he rejected it. And with that will come great 
consequences for his sin. In verse 30 says, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. And it was night. Again, I remind you about how we, in our Seder, we have him eat the bitter herbs. And at that point, I've never done this. I suppose we could ask the guest who's sitting to my left to get that. Uh, now you have to leave. You can't stay for the rest of the evening. But, but he's, what he's saying is, you have no part in this Passover meal. At this point, all Judas has had is the bitter herbs. He has not eaten of the lamb. The lamb meal comes later. He goes in, in the bitterness of sin. And notice, I think it's important that he says, and it was night. Well, of course it was night. It was an evening meal. But no, it was night. It was dark. In the bitterness of sin and the darkness and the night of his soul, he went out. But before the elements of the Lord's table, remember in the Seder, we walk it through after short, some, shortly after this time, and well, not quite shortly, but after this part of it with the, the eating of the bitter herbs. Then there's the lamb meal. The, sac, the, the lamb that was sacrificed in the temple is eaten. And after that is the bread and the cup of the Lord's table. Judas has no part in the Lord's table. Judas has no part in the salvation that comes through the Lamb. Because he has no part in Christ. And those symbols are not appropriate in his life. So with the bitterness of sin fresh in his mouth, he goes out into darkness. And he leaves behind and separates himself from God's people. He has no part in what's going to happen in the, in the, the lamb, in the Lord's table. No part in the message when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He has, he's not connected to the vine. He has no part in chapter 17 when Jesus will pray for his own. Judas is not one of his own. He's been along for the ride, but he has rejected Christ daily, hourly, for three years. He went out away from Christ into darkness. And again, what a horrible, tragic picture that is. There's some lessons we need to learn from this. Again, I've mentioned this before, but here's the reality. Judas was among them denying Christ for three years. And no one knew it. He knew it. But no one else knew. It's possible to go through the motions of being in church. Not just go through the motions of sitting. Singing. Bowing the head in prayer. To go through the motions of even teaching in Sunday school. Or, or, or preaching. Or being a missionary. You can go through the motions and not have the Christ, have his salvation. Uh, a, a, a preacher of a previous generation, J.C. Philpott, said this, Many think a minister is exempt from such coldness, deadness, and barrenness as private Christians feel. The hypocritical, hypocritical looks and words of many of Satan's ministers favor this delusion. Holiness is so much on their tongues and on their faces, their deluded hearers necessarily conclude it's in their hearts. What he's saying is even, even pre- t- today, a 
across the land and across the world, there are people getting up and preaching and talking about Jesus, and they don't know him. And because if people are listening carefully at all, then they're recognizing something's missing here. Something's missing. I remember the first one time I was in a public a speaking class in, in college. And a guy got up and he preached kind of a gospel message, but I noticed something was missing. Jesus. And I thought maybe he just got nervous or something, and I went and talked with him afterwards and said, hey, that was, I really appreciate your boldness getting up and you know, sharing the gospel in a secular campus preaching or speaking class, but I think he should have mentioned Jesus. Well, it turned out he was in a cult. He didn't know Jesus. But he kind of fooled me. It's like as if something was off, but I thought he's just a, a good guy trying hard. No, he didn't know the, he didn't know the message. He didn't, he didn't know Jesus. He couldn't tell them of Jesus. But there are those who can get up. I, I've mentioned at Easter sometimes. The time I was looking, I like to see what others, how they approach Easter, what I can get, maybe try something, or, you know, get some insights. I read one preacher who said, and she said, um, you know, at Easter, I, I, I'm more embarrassed. I'm kind of embarrassed about this whole thing. I'd much rather talk about the Easter bunny than about Jesus rising from the dead. Okay, can I give you a clue? If you're in a church and you hear that message, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> um, but, the, but the point is, there's a many a person that's going through, up in pulpits across the lands, going through the motions like a Judas, but they don't know Christ. And yet... They can, they can put on such an act that everyone is fooled. Beware of that. Uh, this, this writer went on to say, Most pictures I've seen of the Last Supper represent a Judas with, with a ferocious countenance. Had painters drawn a holy, meek-looking face, I believe they would have given a truer resemblance. In other words, gee, you know, he didn't look like a monster. Everyone trusted him. By the way, speaking of that, the picture, when we think of the Last Supper so often, we think of that Da Vinci picture where everyone's on the table looking out. Here's a, something I, I read. Many stories have been told about the painting of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. One of my favorites is that da Vinci made the face of Judas similar in appearance to a personal enemy. How's that for revenge? Shame on you for thinking it. As the artist thought of how much he disliked this man, it was easy to paint him as the traitor of our Lord. However, when he turned to paint the face of Jesus, he could not. His eyes wandered to the face of his enemy, creating thoughts within his heart, which made it impossible to concentrate on the beauty and purity of Jesus. He painted the face of Christ only after he painted out the face of Judas and reconcile himself with his enemy. Judas reminds us of the darkness of the human soul without Christ, of the lostness of the human soul without Christ. And it reminds us of the danger of going through the motions without Christ. can't say any of you fit that category, but I have to ask the question. Do you know Christ as Savior?
do not be satisfied with going through the motions, saying the words, doing the right things. Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you personally, by faith, come to him and say, I recognize my sin separates me from you. I am your enemy by my sin. I ask your forgiveness. I ask that you would give me new life. I ask that you would forgive me and draw me into your family. However you want to say it, but trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior personally. It's not enough to know about him. Judas had that. It's knowing him as your Savior. And we see that it is absolutely dependent on the grace of God. It's absolutely dependent on the grace of God. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, in our honesty, we have to say, I could be a Judas, but God, those beautiful two words, but God, by his grace, spoke light into my darkness, life into my heart. God did it. And so we fall before him with a heart of gratitude and humility and trust. It was very appropriate that when Jesus told Judas time to leave because Judas had no part in the things of salvation. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's table is not for you. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I would invite you to let the elements pass when they come by. But But in doing so, you might ask yourself, why in the world am I not trusting in Christ? This is a wonderful time to to hear his promises and receive him as Savior. If you're not ready for that, we we will appreciate and respect your integrity as you let those elements pass. But if you know Christ as Savior, this is the Lord's table. It's not Terrell Bible Church's table, it's the Lord's table. If you know Christ as Savior, we invite you to join with us in worshiping him in these elements. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for speaking light into our darkness. And how I pray, Father, that each one here truly would know the Savior and that you would meet with us as we worship around this table. I pray in Jesus' name.